work together with Lale Kesebi from Hong Kong, former chief communication officer at Livon, and she is the CEO of Human at Work. And welcome, Lale. Thanks very much, Lale. What a pleasure to be interviewed by you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. I would like you to first talk about how you came to Hong Kong. Are you the early discoverers of the, the gravitation towards the East in on many um, aspects? Or are there coincidences? Because you were raised in Canada, right? That's right. I, I was raised in Canada. My parents are uh, both Turkish. Um, so I'm first generation Canadian. They immigrated there many, many years ago. Um, and I've been in Hong Kong now for almost 21 years. So it's funny that you say that we're, you know, was I the generation that discovered Hong Kong? When I arrived, I met people who had already been here for 30 years uh, prior to me. And I thought, oh my goodness, like, there's no way I'll be here for 30 years. There's no way I'll be sort of one of the old China hands, as they like to call them here. But uh, no, I'm not first to discover it, but I guess I'm first to discover it if you're 25, then I would be considered to be <laughs> an original <laughs> discoverer of Hong Kong. <laughs> um, but no, I feel like at 21 years, sometimes I feel like I know a lot more than when I first arrived. Most days I feel like there's still so much more I need to know about Hong Kong and in particular Asia. It's changed so much uh, over that period of time. And what's the story behind that? I mean, when you were very young, you want, you're trained as a lawyer? I did my undergrad uh, in sciences, uh, and then I went to law school. I practiced uh, for about four or five years. I was a litigation lawyer. And uh, out of the blue, I was newly married with my husband. Uh, he was also a lawyer. And then we just thought, okay, is this it? Like, are we just going to be a lawyer for the rest of our lives and retire at 65? And is it over? Was really the question we asked for ourselves. And once we started thinking that, we said, okay, what else could we possibly be doing? And then we thought, why don't we travel abroad or possibly work abroad? And we threw in our resumes into the loop. Uh, and we were considering jobs in London uh, at the time. Uh, which was crazy as a Canadian because it meant that you were going to work twice as hard and for half as much space just so that you could travel in Europe on the weekends. Um, it was just really a young person's dream. And we sort of, once we came to the realization that that was really not in the cards for us, we forgot about the idea. We decided we were just going to say, okay, I guess this is what life has in store for us. And then out of the blue, uh, we got a phone call uh, from a recruiter for a job in, in London uh, as a result of those resumes being in the, in the loop. So my husband, who's a tax lawyer, ended up getting a job in, in Hong Kong. They flew us out here. We looked at everything. We thought, this is amazing. And, uh, and then we just said, okay, is this what we're going to do? Are we going to look for jobs in Hong Kong and move here? And we, we made the decision. So 21 years later, there was my husband who's built his career uh, in the law. He's uh, still a tax lawyer with a very good firm and, uh, and running this great practice globally. And for me, it was a step out of the law, which ultimately led uh, into business uh, and into that last position you talked about uh, at Lian Fung for the last 15 years of my career. And was really sort of the, I think, a 21-year journey that got me to here uh, doing what I love, uh, which is the work that I do at, um, at Human at Work. So everyone, Oprah Winfrey says everyone has a story. Uh, and, and that's 
my long path and route that got me here today talking to you about the work that I do. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. Uh, you're actually talking about the human nature. I mean, you're, you're talking about work, but your approach is from uh, the human nature. And that's very interesting and very sweet to follow, actually. And I would like to hear uh, more about that. Do you have any co-founders or is this your lonely initiative? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, am I the human at work? Uh, I am the human at work. I did found it. But I I guess there's there's a long answer and a short answer. The short answer is that there's three major principles that that run this business, two of whom were actually uh, appointed just very recently. Uh, One of my co-principals is uh, Karen Seymour. She is Hong Kong's first chief purpose officer. I think she's Asia's second. uh, And I think there's only about five of them uh, in the world as far as we know. So that sort of meaningful work around around purpose is what she focuses on. Uh, Our other sort of co-principal, his name is Yihu Ong. Uh, In fact, his official announcement was today, the day that we're doing this podcast. He's the chief innovation officer. Uh, He's actually also an uh, ex-SU alum. And his focus is really on how to create uh, innovator and residence programs to help scale the burgeoning startup community we have here in Asia. And then also to help translate that agility, speed, startup way of doing things to uh, corporates who are trying to find their way because they're being disrupted. So that's, I guess, the, the short answer. Um, the long answer about sort of that feeling around how people resonate quite sweetly towards human at work um, was the last, really the last five years I was at Lian Fung. I was doing brand. I was working on purpose. I launched an innovation unit um, we focused on on purpose through our foundation work and and what what it was strangely the scientist to me strangely is that that last five years was really like a lab uh, it was the fundamental question that we were answering was could you create awesome fantastic companies great businesses where human beings thrived every day so the sweetness of it was that we did really focus on human beings at that n equals one equation and you're pulling all of these independent variables and you're trying to get to dependent variables and the one dependent variable you're trying to get to for your output is around you know can we activate and engage the the individual person around greater performance inside the company the the bigger question was could you do that at scale inside a company so how do you scale me being able to connect with you meaningfully so that you are unlocked and you are unleashed and could you do that for 10,000 people 20,000 people 500 people whatever your organization is and could your organization thrive so it's a very interesting thing when you ask people about you know what do you think human at work is or what does that sound like to you there's an instant emotional connection that takes place because people go yeah wow that's great and the default is i don't feel like work is very human is really the unspoken conversation. And then when you actually start talking to them about what you're hoping to do and unleash passionately, wouldn't it be great to work at a company that loved you? Wouldn't it be great if you could bring your whole self to work? Wouldn't it be awesome if you worked with other people like that? And wouldn't it be wonderful to win together? That is the human experience at work. We want our work to be meaningful. We want it to be purposeful. It's an innate desire for us to unleash in that way. 
So that's the, that's the longer answer to that sweetness that you were talking about and why mm-hmm. human at work seems to be resonating with people. Because I think for most people, that's not sadly the normal work experience for them. Yeah. It, it reminds me of the first uh, experiences that I had in business. Like I kept hearing these remarks, like, don't take it personal. They kept mm-hmm. saying that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was really taking it personal because I was I was feeling there as a person. I had mm-hmm. ideals and I did I wanted to succeed and give to the world and yeah change the world uh, as a young person. But not taking it personal, it brought people to a, a state that they were like a, like robots, right? Which seemed more efficient mm-hmm. for business, mm-hmm. uh, but you're now trying to bring it back as far as I, I'm, I'm seeing from my experience. Correct. And so um, you are talking about the input and output. It's like you're talking about an algorithm and a scalable algorithm. So do you have this model that you can apply to different types of businesses or how, how does that work? Well, all I do, I guess, you know, I would have a process probably. I'm not a technologist, but I would definitely have a process. But I loved what you said about how we seem to be minimizing the human experience uh, or sometimes dehumanizing the, the human experience in order to get to this efficiency. So, so the input is, whoa, we, the, the input in the, uh, the conventional argument is we have to make something work for a million people. Therefore, this is what we're going to do. And then we're going to work backwards to ram that through an organization. So if you think about processes or policies or uh, how we put teams together, but, but it, it's kind of silly. If you have a process that's, that's effectively starts with first a scale of a million people in mind, and then that is forcing itself onto an organization, I would think you're pretty crazy to think that you're going to make sh- you're going to impact every single person at a hundred percent efficiency rate, even though the mode is attempting to do that at a hundred percent efficiency rate. So while organizations have the right idea of scale, the application of it is incorrect. It just doesn't work anymore. And it might have if perhaps if we were still working six and a half or seven hours a day but we're not. We're working 10 hours, 12 hours, sometimes 15 hours a day. We're working at exponential rates of work. It's a bigger percentage of our day, which means that the bigger percentage of your day now as a human requires greater and greater existential meaning to you. So you can maybe say, you know what, this is a a task I don't like if you're only doing it for four hours. But if you're doing it for 15 hours or with somebody that you don't like or with an entire team that's equally as robotic uh, or perhaps less human in their endeavors, that starts grading on you. You have high levels of absenteeism at work. You have high levels of stress at work. You have high levels of anxiety at work. And that's that's just the human equation. But the bigger part of this is that a mass approach that you were so rightly to point out works if you've got time to some extent, at least if you've got time on your side, long arcs of planning, long predictable environments, uh, resources that are predictable, then maybe you have a shot. But I don't know about you, but I don't live in that world 
anymore. There is no more five-year plan that can actually be executed today and will look exactly like itself 60 months from now. If you believe in everything that, that at least we've been exposed to at Singularity University, if the world is exponential, we can't even predict an outcome, except for the fact that it's unpredictable. We know that timelines are shortening. And we know that in order to do that, you must be able to unlock and unleash people who can help you solve problems. I quite often say that being human at work is like laying assets into your organization that will pay dividends on problems you don't even know you need to solve yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what we're doing here, right? So if you and I feel we have a sense of belonging in an organization, as a result of the fact that we bring our full self to work. And in that full self, we get to 100% efficiency of me and you. And then we scale that to a million people in the same example. And we feel a connection to the organization we're working for because we are heard and we are collaborating and we have got incredibly intellectually interesting work and or problems to solve then that N equals one of 100% efficiency gets scaled at a million. And then what happens when you hit a speed bump in an organization? Then no one has to ask Lale or Lale for help. We're already in there fixing things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're already a part of the transformation that gets you past the disruption and into a new model of growth that allows the organization to win that's what I'm talking about in terms of uh, that human at, at work. So the algorithm then applies literally at that, at almost at a data set level, as opposed to, you know, coming in from the sky and getting slapped onto a data set that it doesn't know. Yeah. So uh, I want to make it clear here. Are you working with the organizations or with the individuals or both? Oh, who is your real client? Well, the client is the organization. So my clients are companies, uh, and usually they are either very large companies or they're established startups that are looking to make their next sort of uh, growth level towards IPO or uh, whatever the case might be in terms of their own uh, focus. But my, my practice is around the CEO directly of companies like that. Uh, that can be one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and usually it's around a major problem that the uh, organization is trying to solve and that the CEO is, is either leading themselves or has been charged uh, to lead. Uh, and that's a very lonely place uh, for a CEO who now all of a sudden sees a massive obstacle in their business or else understands that there's a possible growth and they need to stretch to make things happen. So I'm a, I'm a transformation strategist through and through. So a third of my practice is really about one-on-one -on -one, uh, with CEOs to work through uh, very strategically uh, and very practically, how do you get from here to there based on what it is that they're trying to solve for. And the remainder part of the, the work that I do is really with CEOs and their teams around very specific uh, transformation. It could be digital transformation that they're undergoing. It could be that they are in need of being more innovative and it's there's a cultural barrier inside the company that's not making that possible and how do you create the ecosystem and the cultures of, of innovation that allows the organization to thrive so for me it's the unlock through the organization for the organization to unlock uh, their people to make their 
performance objectives uh, as a company and to do that fast. Uh, otherwise, there, there are fantastic organizations and consultants out there that work on 18-month, 24-month, 36-month tracks, but I fundamentally have a bias to action and I have a bias to speed. We don't have time to wait. Yeah, that, that sounds very good. And it brought to my mind Salim, Salim Ismail. Mm-hmm. Um, He's great. Is, yeah, and he mentions this uh, immune system mm-hmm. that tries to attack uh, the, whatever there's new. Mm-hmm. And you should have some experiences about this immune system. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, I lived it and now I preach it. Um, So I love Salim's work. It was transformative for me. Everything he talks about in terms of how to create exponential organizations, I I think I drink from the fountain of of Salim Ismail uh, for sure. Um, but but I lived it uh, in my last uh, really my last five years uh, in a in a corporate executive job. You know, wonderful direction uh, from a CEO to make tremendous change. Uh, we were an innovation and a new way of working group that that was inside the mothership. Uh, so we weren't doing skunk works. We didn't. We weren't completely off the reservation. We were inside uh, that mothership. So when you're trying to make change. To a, to a very large organization, and it can be any organization that's been around for a while, that's large, that's bureaucratic, that's incumbent, that's been successful before and all of a sudden may not be as successful as it would like to be, there's an immunity to change. Um, even though it's what you need, it's like trying to give somebody a vaccination. Uh, they know the medicine is good for them, but nobody wants to get poked in the arm with a needle. Mm-hmm. It's exactly that uh, when you live it. Um, and the the mothership puts up antibodies to you know the this incoming what it considers to be a virus, and it defends against that, and that is a very lonely place to be as an innovator. Um, it's a very tough place for an organization that wants to make change. But but there are about three or four things that an organization has to do to at least get past a tipping point where the mothership can start um, reducing its uh, immunity against, against change. And, and those are those three or four things are, are the basis for human at work. So the very first is the change has to be led by the CEO. So an organization can talk all it wants about innovating and changing and transforming. If it is not embodied and led by the CEO, it is guaranteed for failure. It is not a democratic act uh, to try to transform, particularly when an in- industry is being disrupted. So that first catalyzation has to happen from the CEO, which is why I like working with CEOs. It's the fast track to change. Is It has to articulate extremely clearly its why for change. And I find most organizations don't do this. So the imperative for why are we doing any of this tends not to be articulated and communicated very well inside of an organization. And that's beyond an email, right? It has to speak to you and I like a human being. Talk to me about why it is that I'm changing. Why does my job change tomorrow? Why are you asking me to do these quote unquote extra things? Um, All of that has to be communicated extremely well. The there, the why and the there. And then the next thing is that you have to be extremely open and transparent about where you are here today is going to be coming from. So the third one is that you have to be, you know, very focused then on where you are at, how good the situation is, and does everybody in the organization start from the same line? 
And then the final thing that has to happen is once you determine where you're headed, where you're starting today, and how much time do you have, you have to be able to focus not on a plan, but on priorities and equally communicate that throughout the organization. So if you think you've got massive disruptive change you're dealing with, you cannot produce a 150-page plan with 75 priorities and lay it into the organization. It doesn't work. But most people at the corporate level, you know, paper doesn't refuse ink. And there's lots of ink that gets printed on paper about these grand plans. And people feel like they've done something because they've laid in plan to a paper. And yet nothing practically has changed in the organization. So a priorities two or three around the core things that you're changing focuses people on what needs to be done. It allows individuals inside your organization to then go, those are the three things I have to deliver on. You can run that through your organization. But more importantly, it allows you and I in our day-to-day job working inside of a company that's as part of change to arbitrage. So I can say, well, I'm not going to work on that with you, so-and-so, because this is the priority that needs to make happen. And you have lots of arbitrage decisions being made that get you towards the end. If you do all of that well, then at any point in time, you can answer the question, are we there yet, uh, to the organization from the CEO. You and I can know from the day-to-day work we're doing, whether we're heading towards better transformation or not, and what we need to do to speed up in that process. So... There, there is an alchemy. Evaluate that? Well, I think that there's, a, there's an art to it. I think part of it is communication. Uh, so you need a transparency radar ping into the organization to tell you this is how far we are. Uh, you need that to come back operationally into your jobs. So let's say, for example, we are on a 24-month plan of a, a transformation plan. And you've made it very clear to me at 24 months what winning looks like and feels like at the there moment. Mm -hmm. Then 12 months, you would have a milestone of what would need to be conditions precedent to achieve 24 months. Your 12 month would have to drop down to six months. Your six months would have to drop down to three. Your three would have to drop down to a month. And if you and I were starting to plan tomorrow, we would need to know what we would need to get done by the end of Friday every week. The only way that works is if your teams are aligned around those priorities. Those priorities have dropped from the world on high down to the unit head and from the unit head right down into the individual collaborator. So I know every day when I come to work, this is what I'm doing to move the needle by the end of Friday, next Friday, the Friday after the month, six months, 12 months, all the way up to 24 months. And you measure that. And that is directly through um, team management that's through common reporting, that's a roll up uh, to the top, that's the top then being able to give the feedback loop to go, not fast enough guys, or whoa, that's great, we're making excellent priorities and movement here, but guess what, now we need to be faster because the world has changed from the time that we made this grand plan of these priorities that we're working on. It's this constant viral feedback loop that has to happen back into the organization. And my experience is that when people know what they are made responsible and accountable for, that they're given the authority to do that. They are clear on the destination. You have a bigger chance of getting there than if you just talk about it from the mount and say, okay, this is what we're doing. And you communicate to the market every four to six months. It doesn't work that way. So that's how you know. And that's how you measure it. This process also involves laying off and hiring new people. 
or do you want to stick to the uh, the team as it is? You know, my experience is that it's not, my experience so far anyways, is that it's not re-engineering um, in the way that we would understand it to be through through layoffs. The problem is, the problem of an organization that can't get to some place is not because half of them decided to only work at half a rate. It's because half of them are working at half a rate and you have potential that you haven't yet tapped inside your organization. Mm -hmm. And what happens by the time we have these terrible conversations around layoffs is really a leader hasn't done their job. Uh, so most of the changes for very large companies didn't literally happen overnight. The signposts were there for years on end. And the change didn't happen, the change didn't happen, the change didn't happen. And then because the change didn't happen um, quickly in, for an organization, even though they've seen the signposts for years, instead of saying, how, how can we quickly change, then the number one go-to move for an organization is always then to say, well, what can I control? In an uncontrollable environment, what can I control? And guess what people can control? They can control cost. So cost then becomes the controllable exercise to transformation. And then, that, then it leads to the, well, I think we need to lay people off. And that actually is not what you need to do, I think, in an organization. Um, I'd hate to think that I would ever advocate for anyone losing their jobs because of poor leadership uh, in, in the past. But really what you need to do instead is to say, if it's not working for you and you feel like you have, quote unquote, too many people, then why don't you just, I would say the, the reverse, you have lots more assets at your disposal magically that you can lighten up and make the change happen in your company. Yeah. But this, this might cause, I wonder if, if it, it causes uh, resistance in people, the fear that they might end up losing their jobs at the end of this process. So well, I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think transformation, the the, the human emotion behind transformation is is fear, um, and and what you're working on when you come to it, to fear is okay. Is it irrational? So can we rationally look at whether there's fear taking place or not? Um, and that's really on the part of the organization and how do we deal with that? When it comes to leadership, the, the fear really comes from a place usually of um, vulnerability and vulnerability for a leader who doesn't feel like they're allowed to be vulnerable. I mean, we don't give leaders enough credit. We don't, we don't allow them to have a wide range of human emotions because we command them to be the most arrogant, ego, confident, aggressive you know, group of people. We give them such narrow emotions that, they're, that we think are typical human behaviors. But in all of those, at a period of change and transformation, and especially if it's mass transformation, what you're looking for in a leader is vulnerability. Because vulnerability then means that they are open to contemplating an alternate universe, another possible future. And at the same time, for most human beings, the show of vulnerability allows other human beings to run to their aid. So think of if you were in a coffee shop and you're just sitting there and you're just minding your own business and you're having a coffee and you're reading your paper and all of a sudden somebody walks right by your table and they fall. They slip and they fall right in front of you. Do you continue to 
have your coffee and read your newspaper? Or do you instinctively get up from your chair and go, how might I help? And for organizations, it's like falling down in a, in a coffee shop. If somebody knows that you are in need of their help, they will come to your rescue. So that fear of even, I wonder if I'll fall if the floor is slippery, or I wonder if someone will think I'm silly because I'm standing up to help this person, completely goes out of the way because we have an innate human emotion to help. Um, and we see ourselves through those eyes in service of other human beings. So when you tap into that emotion, Lala, in a, in a period of change, then that overcomes fear. So you understand fear, you understand where it comes from, but what you're guiding people towards is a far bigger human emotion that makes them feel better about themselves. You inspire action in people and then they feel better about themselves. You build trust, which then allows them to have faith in you to say, okay, look guys, I don't know if this is going to work out, but this is where we're headed because we have to do something together. And I think if we do it together, we can get there. Are you in? Majority of an organization will say yes to that. And then if you inspire them with a higher purpose of how, what winning looks like and feels like and what that will mean to something greater than just your bottom line, or your shareholders, well then, wow, now you've got me for life. I'll do anything for you then, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, And you are experiencing this at the moment, I guess. Um, definitely, uh, definitely. And, and I would say that, you know, if people sort of talk about what's your measure of success for, for human at work, I would say that if we could just change the conversation from cannot to why not, and you know, we, we go back to the basics of what does it mean to build an organization that thrives? Um, and we're prepared to dismantle everything uh, around that. And we're happy to have a conversation over how we can all be our full selves at work and we can unleash uh, people. Then I think my job here is, is done. And in the process of that, if I can help companies to do that, and if CEOs see what their own in-service leadership looks like to their organizations and they feel all mojoed up about what they can do to change the world. Well, wow. Then we're all living in a world that, that matters because we're all pulling in to, to do something different, to do something meaningful, to do something scaled, to do something wonderful for human beings. That's the world I want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. I think governments should be interested in this too. I mean, this is about, uh, efficiency and happiness. Well, definitely. Uh, I mean, well, you've got some great examples in the world. Uh, Dubai, who has its own ministry of happiness, and frankly, there many of the ministries they're creating as a result of disruption that's currently happening to uh, the Dubai government. But it's a process that's not um, focused just on uh, just on corporations. For me, this is where it starts because I just have an experience in the C-suite for so many years. I, I understand how CEOs think. I understand how companies work. I think just, I think at Human at Work, I'm just hacking it. Um, so it's a hack on how to get to very, you know, quickly a, a new way of, of getting to um, all the things that I've been talking about. The same can definitely happen uh, in government. The, the challenge, they used to say the challenge with government was that you just had shorter terms of leadership, you know, four years, two years, three years. 
But in all honesty, it's exactly the same for most uh, board-appointed CEOs. They don't have much of a tenure beyond 36 to 48 months, so that's a great idea. You mentioned people saying, I'm not good enough, and you suggest that they should turn that into, what can I do for the world? That's a, a change and shift, shifting from there to um, trying to give yeah, rather than definitely. judging oneself. Definitely. And I think that that's another gift to the world from uh, Singularity University. It's, you know, if you look at your world in a very limited, scarce uh, perspective, uh, whether you're an individual or a co company, oh, I'd really love to do that if I had an extra $5 million in my budget, or I can't do that because I'm not good enough at this, or, oh, maybe if I was younger, I would try that, etc it's a scarcity model. Uh, it's like, you know, we're fixed on how much is going around and you don't have it on your plate. But if you flip that and you go, okay, look at what the world has got. Seriously. It's got some of the best minds, some of the best technology that we're living in. Some would say the best era for humans. Forget all the conversations about the robots coming for a moment. Literally, we're living in the best era for humans that you can buy. There is nothing we can't do if we don't turn our minds to it. Nothing. So if you come at it from an abundant perspective, then, then why not? Uh, why can't you do that? So then if the issue is you don't know how, that's different than I can't. So you have to collaborate uh, with people. You have to ask for help. This is coming back to our vulnerability conversation. If you assume it's all about you all the time, you're never going to be vulnerable enough to, to know, okay, I need to get from A to B. My there is B. And I, left my own devices, can get halfway. Who can help me get the rest of the way? That, that is the conversation that leaders need to be having with themselves and with their organizations. But very truthfully and honestly assessing how much of that path can I do on my own versus who do I need to invite in as my uncommon partner to help get the rest of the way. You're not abdicating leadership because there's only you. The organization's still looking at you but your solution doesn't need to be about you. It can be about all of us and other people that come into the mix. Uh, that, that's, what, that's what I would advocate there to draw on. Look at how you and I met, for example. Then, then why not, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, we actually uh, got connected thanks to Singularity University, right? Yeah. That's right. On LinkedIn. I didn't need to go to Izmir and you didn't need to fly to Hong Kong to find me. So if that's possible, then why not for an organization, particularly if you're a multi-billion dollar organization, really, why not? Your first course of action is not layoff. It has to be who's in my network, who can help me, and how do I get from here to there? Yeah. And let's talk a little about Singularity University. Mm -hmm. How did you find out about SU and how was your experience? I spent a lot of time uh, in my last uh, laboratory uh, in corporate, um, traveling the world, looking at companies in obviously Silicon Valley, London, Istanbul, um, Shanghai, Greater Bay Area, just to figure out what does the best look like as we were prototyping and modeling change inside the company that I was working for at the time. And um, our CEO was ex-Silicon Valley. And he came back and he, one day and he was just raving about this program that he'd been to, which was at Singularity University. 
And uh, I was very fortunate that we had Singularity run a very bespoke program for us uh, at uh, for, and for the top 50 people um, in the company around our change. And that was my exponential organizations program from Singularity University a few years ago. Now I'm guessing 20... 2015, uh, yeah, 2015. That's right, um, and uh, and and it changed my world. Um, I I love what they how they see the world. Uh, I love the fact that they really are about massive transformative purposes. Uh, the exponential organizations program, in particular, I can't see the world in a linear way anymore, and and I think I'm probably the largest advocate for it here in Hong Kong, uh, probably even in Asia. Um, so it, it was really quite uh, incredible um, to meet. And then through that, it's the gift that keeps on giving to, you know, we reconnect with people who are from other programs that, you know, you weren't even in the same cohort, but yet everyone has the same sort of approach. Uh, so it built, I think, a tribe of, of new thinkers uh, in corporate and government and nonprofit. And I think that's a, that's a tremendous gift for the world. Yeah, that's great. I actually miss uh, those days <laughs> I spent in SU. Did you do GSP program? GSP, yeah. Oh, nice. I'm, I'm from the inaugural class. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you were the guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> I was. <laughs> we were 40 of us. And, oh, um, fantastic. The, the summer there. That was incredible. So um, do you have other plans or a dream beyond human network or going parallel with that? Well, I guess I'm, I'm quite new into human at work. It's a little less than two years. So at the moment, the dream is still alive um, and well. I, I, I think that if I could sort of measure the ultimate success of human at work beyond changing the conversation that takes place, I would love to think about creating human at work as a as an umbrella organization for lots of different people that are practitioners experts new new thinkers in this way i really don't think it's about the future of work i think it's about the future of now um, so anyone who is you know contemplating how organizations can supercharge and jumpstart change um, have a home inside my organization, either collaboratively uh, to co-create, uh, either as principals in the organization. Uh, that's what I'd like to see um, happen. I'm, I've become actually quite allergic to convention. So I, I don't see myself setting up an office of 50 consultants, having an assistant again. Um, it slows you down. Um, and I'm not, this is not to say that there's not a world for that. There definitely is a world for that. But I think in my, in my pushing the envelope, I want to be as highly viral as possible so that when you're ready to go into an organization that has antibodies and is showing immunity, that you're going to go in as the, as the killer hack. Um, and that means living it. So being as scrappy as I can, running my world off of my phone. So using mobile technology and everything that comes with that for you to run a business as opposed to what's very traditional of just turning your head and asking your assistant to do something. So I think that at, at, a, at 50 years old and with 25 years of corporate experience, I feel like I need to be a, a walking testament to an alternate way 
of working just to prove the point that why not? Um, you don't need all of the trappings of everything that you have to be successful. So back to people not bringing themselves to work. Yeah. You give a 78% from around the world uh, that people are not bringing themselves to work. It's well, depending on the stats that you're looking at, if you there's a massive Gallup research study that was done that said that it was only 13% on on average were bringing their full selves to work, fully engaged at work, which then meant 87% were not. Um, and then if you take a look at what are best in class companies, it's 64%, which compared to 13% is, you know, amazing. But really, you know, that's six out of 10 people going, yeah, I'm all in. And that's four out of 10 people going, no. So that doesn't seem like a big deal when it's six people and four people. But if you were on a 10 person team, that's a weird dynamic. I think we've all been on teams that have been like that, where you feel it's like molasses. You can't make things happen because four people are like, mm, I'm not, I'm not buying what you're selling here. But then when you scale that out to 10,000 people, a hundred thousand people, et cetera, then you're talking huge numbers of people that are just really flying below the radar and they're not 100% um, at work, which means that you don't have, coming back to our efficiency conversation, purely on a metric, you have 40% of your population that's just not going with you um, or not going with you as fast as you would like. So those metrics are, are huge um, globally when you look at that data and they're very impactful even at a 10-person team size. So if you're a startup and you've got 10 people and four of you are just not pulling the weight or you're not sure or you're not clear or whatever the or is, that's massive performance impact uh, to an organization. So uh, looking at the future, what, what are you seeing about the um, AI, the, the wind that's going to wipe mm -hmm. off some people from where they are right now? Well, I guess, how do I say this that doesn't offend all my technology friends? Um, <laughs> I would say that I'm less concerned about the impact of AI to individuals at this point in time. So I'm not being naive, but there are definitely tasks and skills that are no longer going to be valued as being performed by human beings. And because they're not valued, I think any human being who does those tasks in the interim or maybe even until those skills or those tasks are eradicated, that work is not going to be meaningful for an individual because somebody wants to come home and say, say I've put in a good day today, I've earned my wage, I feel good about what I've done. And the, and the feeling good about what you've done has to also come to some extent from some peer or some community respect for the job that you're doing. So if a robot can do it or if AI can do it, then you're going to feel like, you know, you're not really living to your potential. But, but I think the shift is that the, the kinds of world, the, the, the kind of a world that we're heading into where automation of tasks where primary decision-making can be run with an algorithm better than it can with a human, is simply going to move human beings up the curve uh, to the very unique human instincts and abilities and skills that we have around empathy, complex problem-solving, arbitrating on ethics and, and morality, 
uh, being able to spot the what I call the Sesame Street equation, which is um, children's show that used to have this skit called one of these things just doesn't belong here. Um, and they would show you four items and then one of them would get, you know, tossed out. If your AI is continually tossing one of the four things out or tossing the wrong one of those four things out, you're going to need a human being to sort of weigh in and decide, is it the right one of those four that's being tossed out or does the algorithm need to be changed? So I think those higher level complex problems solve. The problem is, is that the very human things we need to do um, and the skill sets that separate us from AI and machinery are not skills that are currently being cultivated en masse through our education systems, through our jobs, through our roles, through companies, et cetera. So we're, we're in a gap stage here where we continue to work like we were working like 50 years ago. Meanwhile, there's an onslaught of massive change coming through AI and, and mechanization and roboticization. And we have to close that gap as fast as we can on those skill sets that are tremendously human and valuable for what we need for the future. That's, I think, what the problem is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So I would like to hear a message from you, apart from all the messages that you already gave. For our listeners, I would like to hear some final messages mm -hmm. from you. And are you connecting with people in terms of like, are you mentoring people who reach you and uh, how people can find you mm -hmm. if you like? Well, anyone can find me on LinkedIn. It's Lalik Sebi uh, at LinkedIn. Um, I'm very open. Uh, so if I'm advocating openness to my clients, it's, I practice it myself uh, in the world. So please do reach out to me if you think I can be helpful to you. Uh, and if you can be a part of my, my tribe uh, globally. Um, and I guess as a final message, I would just like to ask whoever's listening to really just be the best version of you, no matter what you are doing in your life and just to tell you that you're more than enough um, that would be my that would be my message if we all did that then i think the world would be a fabulous place even more than it is now yeah that, that's fantastic thank you and so um are, are you planning to write a book or you mentioned the, the tribe you said join yes. my tribe is that, does that have a platform or are you reaching people in, in, in <laughs> ways other than your website? Oh, well, it's really sweet of you to, to ask me if I'm writing a book. It, it tends to be a converse, it tends to be a question a lot of people ask me and I'm, uh, I think a lot of it happened after my TED talk last year. I, I spoke about why it's time to bring yourself to work. And I, I reached a, a, a huge audience of, of people. I was so happy just to be in the room giving a talk to 500 people. And I thought, that's great. That's a 500x scale of me and my thinking and my point of view. And I thought, great, done. And I received these wonderful messages uh, through LinkedIn or people would find me on my website and talk to me about how their life changed that day and uh, how they moved on and they, they're doing great things and they've since kept in touch with me and... Uh, I don't think there's anything I've done in my life where I felt um, so humbled uh, by having a point of view that's touched another person's life uh, and, and their heart. 
And, uh, and, and, and every day something will happen where I'll be speaking and someone will reach out to me and say, I was in the audience. I was too shy. I didn't come up to you afterwards, but you know, what you said touched me. And, uh, by the way, are you writing a book? Um, and, uh, so I find it quite humbling and inspiring all at the same time that, uh, whatever's led me to here at this point and, and what I'm freely sharing with, with the world, just because it's, my established point of view at this point seems to be making a difference um, in people's lives. So I don't know if it's a book uh, or, or what it is, but, um, but, but I like connecting with human beings. I like humans. Uh, I like people and their lives. And if that turns out to be something beyond just the passion that it is for me, then that's awesome. Uh, and if it doesn't, this is, more than enough, just even the way that it is. Okay, Lale, uh, that was great talking to you. And I, I hope to talk to you again in another episode. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Well, I think it's amazing what you're doing. I think that's super brave to just put yourself out there. I think it's a lot of work to do what you're doing. And uh, if I can be helpful to you, um, let me know, because I think it's not a small thing to do what you're doing just to reach an audience around big ideas. Um, and you will.